This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mexican, but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. And that's what happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Youth violence in Latin America and the Caribbean is a big problem, but how well do we really understand it? Do we even know what we don't know? Welcome to another episode of 35 West. I'm your host, Richard Miles. Today joining me by phone is my guest, Trish Campy, a principal researcher at the American Institutes for Research, also an expert who's done numerous uh, studies and research on youth violence, among other places, in Honduras, Guatemala, and Colombia. Welcome to the show, Trish. Hi, nice to be here. So, Trish, you were the lead researcher on a U.S. Agency for International Development study to catalog lethal violence prevention interventions and research evidence worldwide. And then you were asked to apply this research to Latin America and the Caribbean. Did I get that right? Did I characterize that correctly? Okay. That's right. So, before we dive into that report, which I I think is fascinating, I'd like to start maybe with a little bit about your background. So, clearly, uh, this is not your, your first time around the block in terms of doing research. So, why don't you sort of let our listeners know, you know, what your, your pre-careers look like, and, and then tell us a little bit about where you're from and that sort of stuff. Sure. So I'm a criminologist, which means I have a PhD in, in the study of crime. And within that field, for the past 23 years, I've been working specifically around community-based violence and the implementation, the effective implementation of evidence-based interventions or practices to prevent, reduce, um, or delay that kind of violence. I've been working in uh, the Americas. You, you mentioned Latin America, Central America, and as well as North America. Over that period of time, I've done many different studies examining um, gang interventions, um, worked for several years in Massachusetts, California, Pennsylvania, really across the United States, as well as in the Southern Hemisphere, um, to try and understand what the root causes are of violence and crime and a lot of my work tends to focus on systemic and community level drivers, I would say, of violence that sometimes involves things like policing and immediate sort of fights and things that lead to the act of crime. But I'm much more interested in those root causes right. and the things that are driving behavior at a more systemic level. And Trish, so I understand correctly, do you focus mostly on youth crime or is it it's sort of gang violence or where's the main focus of most of your research been? Yeah. So, I mean, youth, that term is often misleading. I mean, when we think of youth, we might think of little kids, but actually in the context of my work and in the the context of crime, we're really talking about 14 to 24-year-olds. USAID, and for this particular study we're talking about today, they categorize youth as those between the ages of 10 and 29. But if you look at the research on crime, there's something called the age crime curve. It's a bell curve, uh, you know, at the left-hand side, not much crime going on. At the top of the bell, it's the peak of crime. And at the right-hand side, it drops off again. And 14 to 24 basically stretches from left to right on that curve. So that's really the prime area for looking at crime and offending, whether it's violence or any other type of what we would call deviant behavior. Right. Okay, let's let's talk about the report itself and and just sort of as a to give it context, I mean for our listeners, this is obviously a big topic now because one of the the drivers that decided for 
Central American migration to the United States is, in fact, violence, whether it's gang violence or cartel violence, and, and certainly in Mexico, that's been a driver of a lot of instability and also in Central America. And then just from what I saw in, in the report, I knew that the homicide rates in Latin America and the Caribbean were high. I, didn't, I was stunned to learn how high they are compared to the rest of the world, that you've got rates that are sort of off the charts compared to uh, world averages. Yeah. Let's start with what were the principal findings of the report, and then we can dig down a little bit deeper. Yeah. So, I mean, just in terms of context, I think it is important for your listeners to understand that, you know, the population that lives in Latin America and the Caribbean region represents a very small part of the population worldwide, maybe less than 10 percent. But that region is actually producing the majority of homicides, much more than two thirds. So just in terms of context, and then when you sort of zoom microscope in a little bit closer, you find that there's really a few countries within those regions that are the most dangerous. And a lot of times people will immediately think of Colombia because of the drug cartel activities going on in the 90s. But actually, Colombia is one of the safest countries in the region now. And many of the most dangerous cities in Colombia are safer than most major American cities in terms of homicide rate. Um, what the study found, we were really looking to understand what the evidence is for intervening in highly violent places, right, to prevent violence. And what we found is very consistent with previous research. We found that there's a handful of interventions that are effective, um, you know, less than 10 types of interventions. We found that they're most effective with the highest risk population. So rather than what common conception might be to work with like little kids in school and kids that don't have a lot of risk to try and prevent violence, it's actually much more effective to work with those who already have a high degree of risk around them. And we also found that the quality of the research and the way in which it's done might not be as helpful as we had hoped mm -hmm. for pointing policymakers in the direction they need to make evidence-based decisions about their programming. So let me ask a real basic question, I guess, from a policy standpoint. When governments at, at any level, whether it's a municipal, state, federal, and, and I'm talking about in the region, you know, Central America and Latin America, when they try to calculate, say, a homicide rate or crime rates or whatever, what are their primary sources of data? Are they simply relying on the police and the courts to basically say, here are the number of arrests, here are the number of homicides and so on? Or are there other independent providers of information, whether it's researchers or uh, universities or statistical agencies uh, mm -hmm. providing that? You know, I always tell people justice is local, and that's true everywhere around the world. And so the answer to your question is that it depends on the location. A place like El Salvador in San Salvador itself in the city, they would rely most heavily on police data about homicides uh, to understand what was going on. In a place like Cali, Colombia, they would rely more heavily on the observatory, which is at the university, and they partner with the police, but also with the hospitals to understand um, shootings and stabbings and that sort of thing. So it, it really does depend on the location. And it's a major gap in quality, the data that's available in places. And if you have corruption in law enforcement or at the municipal level, where crime maybe happens with impunity because there's sort of a blurry line between law enforcement and those who are breaking the law, then the data is further compromised. So it's a, it's a real mixed bag where policymakers 
get the data from and what the quality of the data is that they receive. So one thing I found fascinating, Trish, was that you, you looked at about two dozen types of interventions and you found that you know some worked better than others. And you, you've already mentioned the fact that you found that actually working with the, the children or the youth that's already at high risk is more effective than a general population in which the risk factors may not be as high. But then you also you know went into detail and you look at things like parenting programs and after school programs worked pretty well across the board, but other interventions had mixed results. Could you identify types of interventions that really appear not to work at all or have really no evidence that they're having an effect? So we didn't analyze the programs that have no effect or harmful effects. I mean, we know from the literature what those are. Those would be gang resistance suppression programs, the DARE program, drug abuse resistance education, which is now worldwide. We know those aren't effective scared straight programs where you take somebody into a prison setting or, you know, put them in jail overnight to scare them out of doing things. Those don't work. But our study did not, you know, examine the evidence base on those. We were trying to provide advice on what policymakers can do and should do. So we did look at interventions that have what we call mixed effectiveness, which means that the intervention may be effective for certain populations under certain circumstances, but not across the board in all circumstances. And those interventions would be things um, like violence interruption. There's something called the ceasefire intervention, which is goes by different names in different places. The basic idea is that you try to interrupt the violence before it occurs by de-escalating tensions in a neighborhood. Um, usually this is done with outreach workers um, who have some lived experience and know the neighborhood. The mixed effects, I, I think, from that particular intervention come primarily from very inconsistent implementation practices rather than a fundamental problem with the intervention concept. And I think that's a theme in our results, in our report, is that implementation really matters. And you might have the best program in the world, the smartest strategy, even the greatest teachers and police and all of that. But if things are not implemented with quality and with fidelity, which means according to the way it's supposed to be implemented, the results are not going to be what you hope. So in these countries in Latin America that have the highest rates, like El Salvador, uh, Jamaica, Venezuela, who are typically the implementers? Is, are those the police or is it educators? Is it NGOs? All of the above? Who, who is really the ones that are actually trying to put these intervention programs into place? I would say in the Latin American context, it's mostly um, NGOs and schools. Those are the two primary settings in which the interventions are implemented. If you're doing street outreach work, like I mentioned with the ceasefire, you know, that's usually an NGO or a university um, hiring staff or, or training students to go out into the community and do that work. But the lion's share of programming in the region and really worldwide happens first and foremost in schools with those lower risk populations and then um, with NGOs with the higher risk populations. One thing that I was fascinated by something you said earlier, Trish, and that was in Colombia, which used to be a very, very dangerous place and it's now pretty safe. 
And one of the narratives that we hear, for instance, about Mexico, that the country I actually know the best, is a lot of the violence, when we talk about violence, is driven by cartel violence, either between cartels or within cartels. And so if you're a particularly young, young male involved in the drug trade, then you're going to probably meet a violent death or you're going to be involved in violence. Mm-hmm. But if you factor that out, it's a different picture. What kind of link did you find in some of the countries? Is there a direct link between sort of cartel violence and drug trafficking and violence on the streets? So again, it, it really goes back to the local context, and there, it's very hard to generalize these relationships outside of the local context. You know, in Colombia in particular, where we actually act just finished a study on youth violence. Um, We found that, for example, in a city like Buenaventura, which is on the western coast of the country, it's a port. It's the largest port in the country, and it's highly susceptible, actually, to Mexican drug cartels coming offshore and then, you know, engaging in recruitment activities with very vulnerable youth, Afro-Brazilian youth primarily, who are marginalized in that particular city from employment opportunities and whatnot. But if you go, you know, to a place like Cali, which is just to the east in front of Ventura by a couple of hours, you don't really find that cartel action at all interfering or or creating any issues. You find, you know, these loosely formed cliques or you find criminal gangs who, you know, are, are more like sort of like mobsters who are engaging in organized crime, you know, a lot of financial crime, and they will contract out murder and, you know, violence to a younger population that's willing to make a few dollars. So it's not really driven by the the cartel. So it it really depends there and everywhere else around the world on the local context, the geography, the economics, the opportunities, and the people all interacting with each other. Right. So having said that, I'm about to ask you another question that is going to force you to generalize, But (laughs) so I hope you don't mind. But did any of the countries you study, the localities, were you able to tease out any sort of, I guess, uh, economic development effect? And what I mean by that is, you know, if if a new factory or new uh, source of employment comes, uh, let's say a, a large hotel opens up in the community and provides you know, 50 to 100 jobs, or the opposite, you know, a large employer in the community closes down. Did you see any link between that and either a fall in violence or a rise in violence, depending on the amount of economic activity or economic opportunity that you have in the community? So we didn't study that specifically in this particular research process, but we did sponsor a study that Michael Clemens did a couple of years ago under the same project that this study we're talking about now came out of. And since that time, we've continued to see the fact that economics on its own are not going to prevent violence or promote it. It's a much more complicated picture um, where even if you have economic development in an area, if it's too violent to walk to the job site, if you're being extorted on the way to the job site, if there's violence in the workplace, then the same that is an overarching pressure to outmigrate than just having the job. And there's some famous examples where persistent extortion in some of the countries has led to business owners closing down shop because they can't continue to pay and then many hundreds of workers losing their jobs and then migrating out because of that. So it gets more complicated. A job is definitely helpful for someone to have a healthy connection to their community and to want to stay there. But if there's violence in the community that makes it either difficult to get to work 
or it makes the business difficult to survive in that community, a job on its own is not enough. Right. Trish, you mentioned earlier that it, it really comes down to the implementation, and you're primarily a researcher. And are there success stories that you can point to of um, you know, researchers come up with some good findings, uh, good quality data, and, and sort of recommendations for policymakers? What does it look like from there? You know, how receptive are governments uh, usually to the type of conclusions or recommendations that you make? And can you point to certain examples of where a government, again, at any level, takes the research results and go, okay, we need to design a new program, we need to change our policies, uh, et cetera, et cetera, where that works? And, and what, how does that work? Presumably, they don't just take a report and you know, open it to page one and go, okay, we're going to start. There's got to be a process there. Um, and I'm wondering if you could describe what that process looks like, a successful process. Yeah, so I think in my experience, it would be rare for a government um, municipality or, or any other government leader to make change based on a report. I think in my experience, they need to have a relationship with the researchers and with the people who are trying to work on this problem. And then through that process, they may discover a report like this um, and have the opportunity to figure out what it means for them in their context. And I'd say good examples of that, uh, again, come from Colombia and the city of Cali. And a lot of the changes that they've made there came from very dynamic leadership um, when Rodrigo Guerrero was the mayor there and has continued for the past 20 plus years now, really looking at the data they had asking the local university to conduct evaluations. And he, as mayor, was a former um, head of the public health program. Um, He's an MD, PhD, at the local university. So it was a nice relationship, but it wasn't just picking up a report. It was saying, okay, let's collect our own information about our own city and figure out what is our problem? Where are the hot spots? Who's committing the crime? What's happening around that same time? Are the bars open at that same time? Do we not have enough police in that area? And really doing an inventory within your own community, you can apply the research and the evidence later, but first you have to be able to diagnose the problem, and the only people who can do that are the local government folks. And Kali and Mayor Guerrero are a great example of that process in action. So, Trish, um, how much of your job involves actually sitting down with policymakers and, and kind of walking them through how to do this? I mean, it sounds like you often have receptive officials on the other end. They want to do something positive, but they may not exactly know where to start. You do a lot of consulting or advice in terms of mm-hmm. how to turn this information finding into actual practical policy programs. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that that's, you know, at least as much of my job as the actual research is. Not all researchers are applied researchers. A lot of times academic folks don't have the luxury of being applied, which means they're able to do what you're talking about and have these relationships with local decision makers. But I spend a lot of my time doing exactly that and really listening to them because one of the pitfalls sometimes of being a researcher in this policymaker setting is we come in with all of our research ideas, what we think works and doesn't work or they should do or shouldn't do. But they're actually the expert on their problem. They're the expert on their community. And the researcher should be there to listen and learn and then apply the methods that the researcher's expert in and the evidence base that they know about to those local problems. So it really needs to be a very close collaboration. And researchers were not trained to think that way, Mm -hmm. to have those relationships. But 
in my experience, that is the most effective way to have sustained change in a community if you have a relationship between policymakers and researchers where they're always at the table together thinking about the problems, the solutions, and how to sustain effective results. So Trish, one final question. I know you're a careful researcher and you probably don't want to make any conclusions before you had the full data in, but is there anything in terms of intervention type that is sort of at the cutting edge in which you've maybe seen some very promising preliminary results in in terms of new programs rolled out in in a particular country that you think could offer some promise, but you're waiting on the data before you can make firm conclusions? Is there anything out there, and I'm talking something new, relatively new, that somebody out there is trying that looks promising at this point? I mean, I think... In the region, there are some things that are happening in Colombia that are very promising that involve street outreach and reconstructing neighborhoods themselves so that you're not just repairing buildings or making sure the park is viable, but you're actually creating a center within the community, a place where people can go for whether it's early childhood services, meals, recreation, education, adult education, but it's basically a hub within neighborhoods that have been economically depleted, torn apart by conflict. So it's an investment, right, in thinking about changing the way neighborhoods are organized and structured um, rather than just sending people out of their neighborhood for services. It's really investing in the neighborhoods themselves. And Kali has done a really nice job of doing that. Um, They have different zones. And then you can layer programming on top of that to meet specific needs that that community might have. But what they're doing addresses those root causes I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast, that if you don't address those root causes from the get-go, putting a program in here or a program in there is only going to have an effect as long as that program's in place for the very few people that go through it. But it's not going to affect maybe the, the pipeline of kids who are coming next and the general well-being of the community, older adults who aren't doing well either. Yeah, this is a fascinating topic to me. I mean, it sounds very similar to what we've seen other places, including the United States, where communities that are flailing or, or, you know, sort of alienated, right? The bonds within a given community have frayed or disappeared entirely. And so to the extent that anybody is alienated in that community, you're going to get a whole bunch of pathologies, including violence, um, suicide, that sort of stuff in the United States. Certainly that those are worrying trends as they are anywhere. For sure. Trish, thank you very much for joining us today. This is a, a fascinating topic. Unfortunately for all of us, the numbers show that it will be remain a, a topic for quite a long time, given where we are. But it sounds like there are a lot of intelligent folks out there doing very good work. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk more about this study. And I uh, wish you well in, in your research, and perhaps we can have you back on the show at some point. Good to deal. On a personal note, this is my last episode hosting 35 West. After about 90 episodes over the last two years, talking about almost all of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere, I'd like to thank my producers here at CSIS, Ripka Gemilangsari and Julia Kim, for their excellent work in recording and editing the show. I'd also like to thank Linnea Sandin, Sarah Baumunk, and Ariana Cohen of the Americas Program for help in scheduling and organizing the podcast. Finally, I'd like to thank my guests and my listeners scattered far and wide across the Western Hemisphere. I'm very much appreciated your insights, your advice, and your compliments. I'm Richard Miles. Hello, everyone. I'm Moises Rendon, the director of the Future Venezuela Initiative and fellow with the Americas Program at CSIS. 35 West is taking a hiatus. We will be back soon with more episodes, including an exciting new miniseries called Voices of Venezuela. 
through the miniseries, we will highlight the voices of Venezuelans who are suffering because of the crisis in their home country. We'll feature interviews with Venezuelans on the ground and expert analysis of the ongoing crisis in Venezuela. Stay tuned for this exciting news and more. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at CSIS.org.